0: My name is Dr. Chris Jenkins, and I am the CEO of the Orient Society and the host of the Snake Talk podcast, the podcast where you learn about nature's most feared, maligned, and persecuted animals. I invite you to listen to this conversation, and maybe you'll find that what you perceive as fear is actually rooted in a deep fascination. Welcome to the Snake Talk Podcast. Today, we are going to talk about snakes and photography. And we have Nicholas Hess here joining us to talk about uh, that topic. Uh, He's been doing quite a bit of that over the years. Uh, I say over the years, he's a relatively uh, young gentleman. Uh, But that's also uh, some of what we want to do here on the podcast, just kind of mix up the demographic and get some, some young people on here as well. So, I'm excited uh, about that. As uh, Let's, uh, I'm going to start off by saying that I think photography in general um, or imagery or art of any type is really important when we think about wildlife and we think about wild places and and conservation because it's really inspiring. Um, You know, when I see a beautiful landscape Photograph or, or an interesting video about a you know species of wildlife. It's inspiring to me, and it makes me want to do uh, things to uh, conserve uh, you know those animals and places. So I think it's really uh, an important part of conservation. And as technology changes uh, as we move into the future, I think it's only becoming more and more important. So um, that's one uh, really important reason to talk about this. Uh, the other one is that. You know, there are a lot of people photograph snakes and other reptiles and amphibians as compared to other wildlife because, you know, our animals typically can be captured and we can put them in front of us and we can position them, Uh, you know, things that can be very difficult to do if, say, you're, you're trying to photograph birds as an example. So, we end up with a lot of people. Um, you know doing a lot of photography with reptiles and amphibians and then finally along those lines there's this interesting phenomenon that that i kind of have observed over the years and i'll be curious to get nicholas's take on it but That this group of of people we call field herpers, and we've talked about that before, but these are people who go out and uh, essentially recreationally look for reptiles and amphibians as a hobby um, because the animals are so readily uh, photographed, a lot of field herpers end up transitioning into becoming photographers and really getting into that field as well. So I think it's just a a really important topic with snakes for a number of reasons uh, and excited to have Nicholas here to, to talk about it. So welcome to the podcast,
1: Nicholas. How are you? Hey, Chris. Uh, thank you for that introduction. Um, I'm excited to share with everybody my passion and what I have learned on my mm, almost a decade now of experience. Um, so yeah, there's a lot more behind snake photography than just photos of pretty snakes. So yeah. I'll Great. Well, to you share that.
0: To start off, why don't we, uh, you know, why don't you introduce yourself? And when I say that, I mean um, we'll kind of walk through how you get to where you are today. But, but who are you? You know, where are you sitting today? What are you doing for a career
1: or school? Yeah. So I consider myself a amateur uh, herper, herpetologist, herper, um, and wildlife photographer. So I got into the hobby. Um, when I was eight years old, actually, it's kind of a nice, uh, wholesome story of exactly how I got into it. But right now I'm sitting in my backyard in Southern California, where luckily reptiles and amphibians are quite plentiful and easily accessible for anybody who can quickly access the mountains or any, any wild area. as we have a very nice diversity of, of wildlife and definitely including snakes. Um, so one day, Uh, I was coming home from school. I was probably about seven years old at this time and my, I had a frog at the time and my dad had given me a little surprise in the frog tank. And when I came home from school and looked in the frog frog tank, there was a little baby gopher snake. Um, must've been no more than like 12 inches long, like a little tiny neonate. And just instantly I fell in love with this animal. I named it Hissy. It became my beloved pet. Um, and I basically just at that moment fell in love with snakes. Um, the next couple of weeks I spend just like taking her out of the cage, holding her, letting her go about the, lo- the lawn and explore areas. Um, and yeah, I just, I just like a, a light switch kind of switched in my brain and all of a sudden um, my life changed really for the better a lot. Um, <laughs> And so you grew up in you grew up in California, you're still in California.
0: What part of California? Mm-hmm. Southern California, um,
1: is that right? Yeah, so like just, just outside on the edge of Los Angeles, more or less. Yeah. up against the hills. We got a good amount of wildlife around here.
0: Yeah. that yeah. That's great. And so your first experiences with, it sounds like you had a frog, but your first experiences mm-hmm. with snakes are when your father uh, gave you this uh, gopher snake. And is that before that time, were you going out into nature and looking for them or is this what kind of catapulted you into uh, going out and looking for animals in the wild? Yeah. So
1: before this moment, I did not particularly enjoy hikes. Like my my family was somewhat outdoorsy and enjoyed hikes, but I would always be like at the back, really slow, not really enjoying the time, even though there's some like amazing hikes here. However, when we would get to like a stream and there'd be frogs around, I would immediately, like that light would go on again and I'd immediately be like super fascinated. And I just really preferred the slow approach to being in nature and really looking at the little things. And also I had before this, moment had pet lizards and frogs so there is definitely um definitely that that fascination was already in me but then after i you know hissy came into my life um that's when really we began to with the help of the field herp forum actually my my dad mess put a post on the old NFHA field herp forum like hey my son is really interested in these snakes how can i find more of them so we can just see them in the wild um, and luckily, we got a lot of help from some old timers who were really welcoming to us and like um just like really gave us some advice and even invited us to a Tahone range survey for like a herpetological survey and From that point, I had met people, and like immediately, I was like looking for snakes in the wild, and that as anybody who's done that before knows it's like it's an addicting thing, and once you're hooked like <laughs> You know, yeah, it's, that's all you want to do. So, well, that's I love, kind of when everything changed.
0: I love that snakes and frogs and, and reptiles and amphibians were kind of uh, your springboard into just nature itself and that mm-hmm. they helped you uh, turn around, say, a family hike for you and, and really start to enjoy things. So, um, and it sounds like a Field Heart Forum was pretty critical uh, in, in building networks to, to allow you to explore this more. Absolutely. So, w- would you consider yourself a field herper? Then is this, um, you know, is this something you do uh, even today recreationally, where you're out looking for, for say, snakes in your free time? Yeah, for sure, hundred percent. And and so that's you're doing it as a hobby, if you will. You you said amateur, but you know you're you're relatively young. How old are you? I'm nineteen. Nineteen. So you finished high school.
1: And um, if I remember right, you're kind of in a gap year. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So I just finished my year abroad, my gap year, year abroad after high school. So I got to travel to some really cool places, being Costa Rica for three months and then the Galapagos Islands actually for about a month and a half. And then again, back to Costa Rica for another three months. Ah. Well, let's talk about
0: that for a minute. So did, uh, first of all, did you design your gap year just to kind of have life experiences or did you design your gap year to give you experiences that would propel you towards kind of what you want to
1: do next in your career? Mm -hmm. So there were a couple goals in the gap year. Um, one being like the most simple, just being get around and photograph some new species. Um, And the other being to kind of focus me and try to figure out if I would rather pursue more of the academics in wildlife photography, being like the science behind um, reptiles, the science, you know, like the academic part, or would I rather pursue more of a photographic career in the future, maybe like a, a videographer or like a filmmaker, that kind of thing. So, kind of trying to see which which pulls me more um as a career um and also on top of reptiles and amphibians i am uh, an underwater photographer so part of it was also kind of weighing the options between do i want to go into marine biology more or more the biological aspect so there are a few like um questions and kind of having these experiences in these different places um i the hope was to kind of get a better idea of exactly where I wanted to, which direction I wanted to head and further in life.
0: Well, it sounds like you're making the best of your gap. You're doing both one kind of exploring and having some great life experiences, but you're also, it's fairly goal oriented and it's kind of helping you make some decisions about your, you know, kind of your next steps. So, I think that's really great. So, we did talk, we talked about how you ended up getting into snakes, but, you know, you really have these two components to what you do. It's 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 so deep that you're you know, you're, you're trying to figure out which direction you want to go for your career. Um, and, and, you know, you, you might even be able to do both, but that's, we, we'll talk about that later. But um, I would be curious to know, how did you get into photography? How did, how did that all start?
1: Yeah, so you spoke sort of a, like this synergy between both this photography aspect of my life and the snake uh, aspect of or wildlife aspect of my life and really like these two things happened at the same time more or less so just like maybe a few months no more than a few months after um you know my father brought home that gopher snake did i find this really really old two megapixel camera um just like lying around the house like in some cabinet somewhere and Like I like to say, I just like bonked it against the table and all of a sudden started working because before it had been pretty much broken. Nobody thought it was working anymore, but I just touched it and it kind of turned on and I started photographing fence lizards in my front yard, like pigeons and seagulls at the beach and pretty much literally everything I started photographing. And that was another light bulb that turned on in my life right around the same time when I was seven or eight years old. Um... And then my dad, of course, being incredibly supportive, saw this and he got me a slightly better camera, like a Fujifilm, something. Not a very good camera at all, but at least with this, I could zoom in a little bit more and it also had like a macro and super macro mode. And with this, like, I just went totally berserk and photographed like every single flower in my yard, every single bird I have, uh, somewhere on some hard drive, somewhere I have like just thousands and thousands of photos um, taken like in just like a few days. Um, so I really went crazy with the photography thing really quickly. And of course being in love with animals and snakes, the natural subjects right off the bat were, um, snakes, if I could find them or just like any other wildlife and plants around that I could have easy access to.
0: Yeah. Hmm. So finishing up your gap year, our discussion of it, how, how did, uh, did you end up finding many interesting things in Costa Rica and the Galapagos? I have to think you did.
1: Yeah, of course. Yeah, for sure. Um, I saw some really, really incredible animals from bushmasters to, um, tiger sharks and hammerhead sharks and marine iguanas and, um, basilisk lizards and, um, ocelots, ocelots eating sloths. Like I saw a huge, huge diversity of Wildlife, which was a, a huge privilege for me to get to see, um, and of course I got to photograph it along the way. Did you uh,
0: did you have the opportunity to see any of the giant tortoises while you're in the Galapagos? Yes,
1: yes, I did. Uh, um, I got to see the Sierra Negra giant tortoise as well as the Santa Cruz um, giant tortoise. So those two species were the ones I got to see uh, up the, close. That's great. We
0: uh, here at Orient Society, we've been. Um, Starting to work more with giant tortoises, mainly um, in the Indian Ocean, and uh-huh. uh, I I had the opportunity to go and see Aldabra tortoises in the hmm. wild. It truly uh, uh, amazing experience. Yeah. So, uh, well, that's great. So you get to see parts, uh, various parts of the world, and you get to see a lot of uh, amazing wildlife, and I'm assuming photograph it all. How, how did? Uh, so it sounds like. We're going to talk about gear, but how did you get from, uh, you know, obviously just finished high school. Um, camera gear is very expensive. It sounds like your father's very supportive and mm-hmm. he upgraded you even very early on. Um, but I'm assuming, given you've been now doing photography for 10 years, that you've upgraded You know, uh, in in those last ten years, and so so, how were you able to to manage to do that? Is it the type of thing you just kind of pieced it together? For Christmas, I want this piece, and for whatever holiday or
1: birthday, I want that piece. Definitely, a lot of that going on for sure. Um, I'm lucky to have grown up in a in a very well-to-do family. Uh, We're not crazy rich, but we've got enough that I can really, really we can really support my hobby really well and I have these experiences, so I have to give a lot of credit to that as well. Um, but yeah, uh, more recently I've been paying for uh, some more of my own gear, and um, so we've got a little bit of both. But starting very early on, I have a lot of my equipment, except for a few parts, is um, quite old as well. Um, and of course, there's always new equipment to buy though, so I've already, I've got my eyes on other things I want and looking at it, so um, there's, a lot, there's a lot of gear that I could have, but I also want to stress the fact that you don't necessarily need all the gear in the world for anyone who's getting into it, um, that a lot of times uh, just a basic macro lens and any basic zoom capabilities can actually take you a long way. Um, yeah, Great.
0: Well, I want to get into some of that, some of the gear and some of the specific types of photography. Uh, mm-hmm. but, but first I want to talk about something I mentioned uh, in the intro, and that's this concept that, uh, you know, that these animals, you know, as, as field herpers or biologists, we oftentimes have these animals in our hands, mm-hmm. um, which makes them relatively easy to photograph. And thus a lot of field herpers uh, really, uh, get it, are getting into photography. And that's just like an anecdotal observation of mine. Is that something, uh, that you see as well?
1: Yeah. So there's a lot of nuance to be used in this subject because I know there are certainly people who are against the idea of, you know, having herps in hand and, um, kind of against the whole idea of like, of catching animals and like if it's wildlife photography you know you shouldn't be touching it so I want to be really clear um when we talk about this subject because we could have the entire podcast and or more just behind um ethics behind like handling of the wild animals um but just to answer your question yeah there's definitely a lot of people out there especially with social media you see it even more often than perhaps when I started Of yeah people who want to photograph wildlife and I think it's uh, mostly a very good thing to have um, people interested in these things and kind of bringing a lot of, um, like if you combine the following, like bringing a lot of awareness to the public of that these animals are not out to get you um, and that sort of thing. Um, Cause I think photography is a very, very powerful tool.
0: Yeah. And, and I'll say at least with my anecdotal observations, uh, not all, but how a lot of field herpers get into it are, are a little bit different than you in that, Uh, it's, it seems like to me, you know, your interest in snakes and in photography has kind of grown in parallel and there's, you know, it sounds like a depth of interest in each. Um, whereas a lot of the observations I've made, people have the primary interest in the reptiles and amphibians, and then they, Mm -hmm. they kind of get into the photography later on as as they, uh, you know, as they start photographing more animals and, you know, I'm glad you went to the ethics piece because I was going to ask you about that. As the number of field herpers grow and as the number of field herpers that get into photography uh, grows, more animals are being handled and, uh, you know, every photograph is worth something, right? It's worth a memory to somebody, you know, but uh, i just curious if there's a trade-off there, meaning, you know, if the you know, there's only a certain number of quality photographs that are needed of any given species, say, are we, do you think there are, are real ethical concerns with, uh, you know, this growth uh, of interest in photography and field herpers?
1: Yeah, for sure. And it's definitely um, something that's been on my mind a lot, um, especially in the past year or so. And I think there definitely are moments and even uh, many moments that we have to be concerned about, A, the growing number of um, herpers who want photographs of the same animals, and we have to think about the effects not only on the snakes themselves, but also the habitat that we are um, going through. So I think, you know, there's there's one aspect, which is just the growing number of people, but also in any, like, as, as a whole, like, our, our impact on the habitat and on the animals um, like as a group and then also the impact in individual instances with a snake because I think it is hugely dependent on how um, the snakes are treated by the person because there's a huge difference between finding a snake on the ground and you know gently picking it up keeping the snake calm and also like Hooting and hollering, jumping up and down, grabbing it by the tail, and like dangling it, and like posing for an Instagram selfie with it. So I think, you know, like to to not look at like the differences um, between how they're handled by um, different people, and like is will is important as to thinking about ethics because it, it really can vary from instance to instance. And or and of course, for example, it depends on the behavior. If I find two snakes that are coiled next to each other, like either mating or about to mate, I'm I'm not gonna you know like grab those two, pull them out of their bush, and put them on a rock for a photo as well. You know, it really depends on the situation and how history is treated. And I think it's very important um, to have these conversations so that um, you know people know from early early getting into the hobby when is it appropriate to manipulate these snakes and get your photos of them and when is it um, not appropriate? Because it, it, like for example, like there's some things I've done many years ago, I've been in this hog for a while that I look back at now and I'm like, wow, that probably, that actually that definitely was not the best thing for that snake. So um, I think there's definitely ways that uh, things can go awry and it can be easy to slip and do something that's unethical. Um, but I think for the most part that if everything is done correctly, it can be uh, very beneficial, um, and it can be a very, uh, a very healthy practice for the snake and people and everything as a whole um, to still be photographing these snakes in the wild. Um, and I think uh, I, I take it upon myself often on my Instagram posts and my captions, um, talking to people, calling people out to make sure um, as a whole us herpers are doing the very best we can um, to ensure that, uh, the snakes and the habitat is being respected and not, um, not just used.
0: That's very good. I like, I like you gave a couple examples of how you can minimize how these activities might impact an animal. As you mentioned, how you handle them, uh, say being relatively calm and gentle. Uh, you, you mentioned if snakes are, are, you know, in in the midst of some particular type of behavior, uh, not handling them. Uh, I would assume there's a, a long list of these that that we won't go through. But anything from like the amount of time that you handle them. That's another one that's very important. Um, to you know, not flipping giant rocks that that you know could really disturb, say, gestation sites or or, or whatever it might be. So, uh, and and I certainly feel that way. You know, as kind of like your story, when I was younger. You know, I was always more, um, you know, studying the ecology, but, you know, if I encountered a snake, you know, it got, you know, usually I'm really into venomous snakes. So it it usually ended up on a hook or in a tube or something like that. Mm -hmm. But most people, you know, you'd be amazed if you came, uh, you know, say to the Southern Appalachians to come out and see some timber rattlesnakes with me. uh, You know, I don't even bring a snake hook, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, anymore. I, I go out and... I, you know, I'm looking for timber rattlesnakes and we find them, but I don't, I don't touch them. I mean, I can, you know, I only handle animals now if there's a purpose for it, Mm -hmm. like, and and getting a good photograph could be a good purpose. But in my case, there's probably a scientific purpose. So we're catching it, we're marking it. But if I'm not doing that, I don't pick up the animals. I just look at them. And I think there's something, uh, you know, I know people aren't going to be like, oh, all of a sudden, I'm not going to handle all these animals, but it is worth having people think about uh observing these animals in the wild and a timber rattlesnake's a perfect example um you know if you're out looking for timber rattlesnakes say and you really disturb the animal it's behaving nothing like a normal animal and everybody should try bringing a pair of binoculars and going out and and when you see a timber rattlesnake watch it from just a little bit yeah. of a different uh, distance with the binoculars it's fascinating they act uh, you know, they're not rattling and coiled up and doing these things that are actually relatively rare for them to do. So anyways, that's a little bit of a soapbox by me, but yeah. um, I do think it's an interesting discussion.
1: To add to that, you know, it's definitely easier for us to have been, who've seen a lot of these things already many, many times to be like, oh yeah, just watch them. I know if somebody like five, six years ago told me, oh yeah, you're going to find a new species of rattlesnake you've never seen before and like, don't touch it. I'd be like, what the heck, you know, like I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna want some nice photos of this to Jared has a memory. Uh, of course, doing it all uh, at, with as little disturbance to the snake as possible, while still um, manipulating it for photos. Um, so, like, it, it's definitely easier for me to say now after seeing like hundreds of rattlesnakes to be like, oh yeah, um, you know, just just don't just watch them. You know, there's a lot to get out of watching it, and I definitely in agreement with you because. I have times, you know, I watch a snake, actually just coming from Costa Rica, we found a coral snake in a stream and um, it was hunting shrimp and shrimp and fish and just watching it for, we watched it for like 20 minutes and like that was a much, that was a super, um, super fun experience to just watch that natural behavior. So uh, like it's really important to stress that like these, these really um, good encounters can happen without any need to touch, um, the snake. So it, there's definitely a reason to, you know, not necessarily have grabbing the the subject be the first act when upon discovering a, a new species. So, but yeah, I mean, I guess my point is just like it can, it, I, I was once that person who wanted to get good photos, good textbook photos of everything. So, and I still am to an extent. So it's a very interesting subject. Yeah. And that's great. I'm
0: glad we talked about it. We can leave that subject for now. And a lot of what we're going to talk about from here on out, um, uh, everybody knows will will require a lot of handling of animals, but, um, but I'm glad we at least touched on that. So let's start getting into the photography Mm -hmm. uh, specifically. And so let's say you're in a desert somewhere in the Southwest, a place you've never been, and you come upon a snake uh, that you've, that you've never seen before mm-hmm. uh, you've never you've never photographed before let's say what what's your first thoughts when you see that snake obviously you're going to catch it but like what are you thinking from a photographic perspective like you want to photograph this animal you're in this new landscape mm-hmm. what's running through your mind from a photography perspective
1: from a photography perspective so usually when i'm target i'm targeting a specific species um, or at least a specific set of species. Um, so first off, just like a lot of excitement comes just by finding the species. So let's say it's something that won't like dart off immediately and I have to grab it quickly, make a quick grab. Um, but first things first, I probably will, I always have my zoom lens on and ready. So I'll probably just get like a quick in situ photo, like a, a voucher, like proof photo, like, hey, I found this in case like an eagle comes out of nowhere and grabs and takes it away or something. Um, so first I'll just get a photo of it, just anything before anything goes awry, dips down a hole or something. Um, and then, um, I like to kind of just like be in the moment for a little bit if I can, if it, if it's holding still, um, because like, especially today, because in the past, um, I was definitely one to grab quickly, you know, and be like, oh, I could have gotten a nice and see too, but now it's in my hand. That's that opportunity is ruined. Um. So I like to be in the moment more and slow things down. It's also better for keeping um, the, the the stress to a minimum for the animal. Um, so then let's say it's the daytime when we find it. I'll start thinking, do I want a habitat photo of this snake? Do I want just a portrait of the snake? Uh, what, what exactly, what kind of photo can I get? How can I maximize um, or like... What's the best possible photo I can get in this scenario? Or maybe I only want in situ. Maybe it's a perfect in situ as well. Um, So then I'll look at the habitat. Let's say I have an amazing vista. Like I'm probably going to go for the wide-angle photo, um, wide-angle and habitat photo. And maybe it's like just canopy and just ugly leaves and bushes everywhere. Then I'll probably go for more of a portrait photo. Um, So then if possible, I like to get my gear ready before I even touch the snake. Um, just to, like, keep the handling of it to a minimum. Um, And also, as early as possible, I try to think about exactly if I'm going to move the animal, which uh, the majority of cases, when I do photograph an animal, um, I will do. Um, I try to see, I try to get everything ready. So, okay, I'm going to put it on that rock over there. And we're going to, also, we're going to make sure the rock isn't, like, super hot so that we keep the, the heat of the animal low. Um, and then also if, if I'm with a person, the snake starts to move, um, we'll, we'll pick up the snake and I'll have the other person hold the snake calmly with two hands um, and I will get all my gear ready because it can take me a minute to change lenses, get the flash ready and all that good stuff. And then next up is um, once I have everything ready and I have the photo composition in my mind, um, uh, it's time to basically, w- we call it posing the animal so that it's in a, in a Good, attractive position for photo and holding still where we want it. Um, and that part is often the hardest part of the whole process and is uh, probably where you have to be the most careful as to not overstress the animal. Um, so, usually, depending on the size, um, my technique is my favorite technique or like the most common technique as well is usually called like the cupping technique, but involves placing the animal on the ground and Putting your hands gently over it and kind of holding it in place. And if all goes well, it's chill and it's not like flailing everywhere and it will hold that position um, for a nice photo. Um, now, that perfect scenario with a perfectly cooperative snake is probably the minority of cases, although it definitely happens on occasion if you're lucky. Um, so, I want to go into pretty good detail here to uh, kind of use this opportunity for anybody who's like photographing snakes to know that this can potentially be uh, very unpleasant for the snake. So here's how I keep it from getting to that point. First of all, it's very important that the site that you choose is fairly is, is cool and not too hot. And also I like to pay very close attention, very close attention to the behavior of the snake. Um, for example, how is its breathing? how twitchy is it? Is it exerting a lot of energy, or is it very chill? And this varies greatly um, depending on individuals, between individuals and species, and between species, um, it varies greatly. Um, and sometimes, like you just have to let the snake go. Sometimes the snake, it's it just does not start stop thrashing its body, and you know you don't want to you don't want to prolong that for the snake. So.
0: How long would you typically go if, say, you had a snake that was uh, thrashing or twitching and uh, not cooperative, uh, how long would you just typically try to pose it before you would just say, well, let's just get a photo in hand and call it a day kind of thing?
1: I mean, if it's twitching really, really badly, and especially if it's a smaller snake, a smaller snake's um, stress quicker, I'd say after five minutes, I'll already decide um, if if it's very bad to just let it go. and that's that. It's just basically be like, oh man, that sucks. But at least we got to see the pretty species. Um, and then on the opposite end of the spectrum, I've had times that, like a, a large rattlesnake in cool conditions, like I is just acting like a puppy dog. It's breathing is super slow. Um, it's looking it's looking healthy. Like it's not too hot on the rock. And if if it just holds positions and does everything well, like definitely. Upwards of an hour, hour and a half with one snake, if it's really, really behaving well. Um, and, but yeah, definitely not all the time. Is that very rarely even is that actually um, like can you get away with that with the snake? Um, Would you more, more, more average? Um, I think like I generally try to cut things at about half an hour. Um, just be, just as, as a rule, like. Okay. After an hour, half an hour of photographing a snake, if it's like kind of in the middle, just like not particularly thrashy, but also you know not not exactly completely at 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 ease with the whole situation, I I try to just I just have the rule kind of now like okay, even if I don't have the photo I want, it's been thirty minutes. Like I should I should just get him back to where he was. I think that's a very important because you don't want to you don't want to get to the point where things are kind of problematic. So you try to prevent it from even even getting to that point. And also, sometimes there's multiple photographers, and it's not like every single person gets half an hour with the snake. You know, I think it's important to, uh, you know, like a, it should be a total of half an hour for a snake as a rule. But obviously, uh, sometimes you get lucky, and the individual is is very calm, breathing slowly, not, not making fast movements, and just looks... You know you, you can tell when a snake is is more calm or, or not so calm and in those times I think it's alright to prolong it because there aren't really any negative effects, it's, it's at ease and either it's smart enough to know you're not want to hurt it or it's dumb enough not to realize that you could hurt it, um, but regardless they are not being overstressed in the situation.
0: wanted to take a break and uh, tell you guys if you care about snakes wildlife or wild places and you like what you're hearing on this podcast go to www.orean.org now And I've seen this before where, uh, say I'm out in the field with somebody and they find a snake and they capture it and they say, bag it or put mm-hmm. it in a container, uh, where this is legal to do. Um, and then you, you, they take it and they photograph it, uh, at another time, whether that be better light conditions. So I'm just curious how often, uh, would you end up doing something similar to that Mm -hmm. or would you recommend uh, against that? And this again is with the caveat that it is of course legal, um, you know,
1: wherever you're, you're photographing the animal. So you've asked me how often I do that. And the answer is three, actually four times ever one time with somebody else um, who did it for themselves. So I actually generally do not think that this is good practice. And I'm actually kind of glad you asked this question because it is a very common practice. And I think that at some point, um, you know, yes, I'm, I'm definitely removing the snake from a habitat for a certain amount of time as well. But you have to think, let's say you oftentimes the most, the most often reason people do this is because they find a snake at night and they want a photo of it in the day or, you know, the night is only so long, and they don't want to spend time photographing that snake at night when they could be finding other snakes. So they put it in the bag, put it in their car, and then find find more more snakes. And then in the morning, they photograph them. So there's actually a lot to unpack here. Um, I'll just start off with one problem being the placing a snake in a bag um, can be risky, just in terms of. Uh, like for example, especially in the U.S., snake fungal disease. First of all, you know, if if one contaminated snake is in this bag, and you don't wash the bag, and then you have another snake in the bag, you know, there's there's definitely opportunity for the transmission of disease. Um, that that's like the what what kind of like what I think of most immediately when I think about bagging snakes. Um, so if, if on the very occasions that I have put a snake in a bag, it is a bag that I've I've basically bleached before, between moments of having snakes in it. So it's very important. Um, Like, I I do not like the practice of bagging snakes for that reason. The other reason is that you have to then release the snake. And first of all, it's extremely important that the snake is released in the same place. And if you are in, like, let's say you're driving some desert road and you find a snake in the middle of, like, between mile, whatever, 19 and 20, like, freaking, how are you going to know exactly where you found that snake. Like maybe some people put a place marker on their phone. And then with that, like, okay, you can get back to the same spot. Maybe you stack some rocks on the side of the road to make sure you get in the right spot. So it's possible to get the snake in the right spot, but also you have to go back to that spot and release the snake. Uh, and this is assuming of course that they release the snake at all, which I, I do hope people are doing. Um, so you have to get the snake in the same spot. If the snake is released in a different place, it is not familiar with that environment, you could be spreading disease just that way as well. And um, yeah, the snake could just be lost, doesn't find its hole and then it just dies. Um, and the other thing you have, i if you find a nocturnal species, I would really hope that people are releasing that nocturnal species at night. So does this happen every single time somebody bags a snake? I would hope so. Um, so there's ways to do, <laughs> I'd, I'd say do bagging right. And, do, doing bagging worsely. Like, it's just, I don't know. I don't like it because there's a lot more ways for things to go wrong for the snake, I think. And of course, that's not even considering that just by definition, taking a snake overnight, you know, if I'm photographing a snake for like half an hour at night and then I let it go, I've had times I let the snake go, I come back to the same spot, like on the way back in my hike, like 20 minutes later, and it's back in ambush position like it was before or I see it like cruising and he's just back to doing his thing. Um, and I'll, I'll be like, sometimes you, you photograph a snake and it might, it might just be pissed off and it, that's, that's the rest of the night for it. However, like pulling a snake out of its habitat for the whole night, not to release it, I would hope the next night, but sometimes I know people will hold on to it for like more than just one night, you know, you are removing that snake and guaranteeing that it is not whatever finding finding a mate that night it's not eating that night it's not doing any of that good stuff that night so yeah, that's yeah so there are there are definitely ethical concerns yeah.
0: with that as well that's that's great to uh, great to think about cuz i sense that it happens quite often mm-hmm. let's uh, let's transition and talk about some specific types of photography that get used with snakes uh, quite often and we'll start with a term you've used um already multiple times uh, macro. And so first of all, for uh, for our audience, what what are we saying when we say uh, macro?
1: Yeah, so macro photography in general is just taking a picture of something very small with a very powerful lens that can make that object look very large in the photo. Um, so often like so any photo that's close up of an insect or bug is a macro photo, and any any portrait of a snake would be considered a macro photo as well. And a macro lens is just a lens that is specialized for taking photos of small things and getting a, a, photographing them and having the image result in a large, the subject taking a, up a large part of the photo. Um, so would
0: you consider, so let me give you two different pictures of snakes. So one, you've got, say, a coiled snake and, and its entire body Uh, makes up the photo, or you have one where it's just the head, say. Mm -hmm. Uh, Are those both macro photos in your mind, or is it just Um, the close-up of the head?
1: I mean, the close-up of the head is no doubt a macro photo. And I'd say if it's a small species of snake, yeah, the the full-body shot is also a macro. But also, oftentimes, I shoot, let's say, a large snake. If I take a full body of a large snake, it's still shot with my macro lens. So I might call that macro as well. But generally, like when categorizing the photos, I'll call that a full-body shot. Or, um yeah full body shot more or less or textbook photo as mm-hmm. well how, how do you so it seems
0: pretty simple you know probably to many people oh you zoom in with this this lens and you know say the snake's head takes up almost the entire frame and your photograph but there's it's got to be a lot more nuance to that so than that so what are some you know, advice or or thoughts that you have Mm -hmm. on taking macro photos of snakes, anything from, you know, different points of focus Mm -hmm. within the frame, um, how to compose it, you know, what are you thinking about when you're trying to take a macro photo of a snake?
1: Okay. So, I think just like as a general general rule, that's like 99.999% of the time, very important is just to get the eye sharp in your macro photos. Um, and also to often, it's nice to get down to eye level with the subject. Um, so those, those two things, you get those two down with a macro shot and you're, you're, you're in good hands. But the next thing that is oftentimes much harder, especially for beginners is getting good lighting on the snake, especially because oftentimes, you know, we're finding these things at night and just like shining that, that snake with your flashlight. And, uh, that's just going to be a really, really harsh light for the photo. And it's not going to look like, it's not going to look how you would like it to look. Um, So getting good lighting setup is very important. Sometimes you find some snake on an overcast day and like the natural lighting is really, really nice um, and you can go natural lighting or sunlight. Sometimes if you get the right angle with the sun, you know, natural light can look very nice. But I know for me, the majority of times I, I definitely prefer having an external flash. So I think if anyone who's really getting into this wildlife photography or, uh, snake photography should really invest in a external flash. Um, you can get some pretty cheap ones, like, like for a hundred bucks or less, you can get a, like that can really step up your game in, in your macro herp photography. Um, and then after you get the external flash, um, you can also invest in some kind of diffuser to just make that light a little bit less soft, but basically what an external flash will allow you to do is have full control over your lighting. So how strong your light is um, and what angle your light comes from. And it, you, you just have so many more options instead of being restricted to what the, what the ambient light allows you to do or what your flashlight... Flashlights just have ugly light. Don't, don't use that. Um, so, yeah.
0: You you mentioned a couple of terms in there. Uh, you said soft, so I'm assuming it's soft versus hard light. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you mentioned, uh, or I'm assuming soft versus sharp light. Well, I don't mm-hmm. know what. Harsh, basically, what what do you, harsh? There you go. What what? what how would you? Uh,
1: what does that mean when you mm-hmm. when you use these different terms talking about light? Yeah, good question. So, um, basically, harsh light would be defined by having a lot of very bright highlights and reflections and very dark shadows. And, um, for example, contrast Then and a a little too much contrast. So for example, and sometimes, you know, there, there, it totally depends on the situation. Sometimes you kind of want more of a contrasty shadowy photo. So like, obviously as a photographer, you gotta, you gotta just play around with these things for yourself and kind of see what you like. But as a general rule, when I'm going for just like a nice portrait shot, I want the, I want the resulting photo to be have very soft light, meaning, you know, the shadows are go have like a gradient of being like dark to lighter. So instead of having like a harsh line, for example, on the chin of, of a snake, I don't want the chin to be completely black and you can't see any detail in there. And then have like the top of the head be reflecting um, the, the flash right back at the camera, like really bright. So what a diffuser does is it spreads out the the source of the light to a larger area, and then the result of that, basically, if you can imagine, the light hits the the the, the rounded surface of the snake from different angles, um, and therefore just prevents there being sharp lines in the shadows and pre- and prevents the reflections being as bright because of the angle because the light is hitting the subject at a variety of angles, as opposed to just one single source. If the flash is undiffused.
0: Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, that makes sense. So, um, Along the lines, uh, I would think another type of macro snake photography, and we've done some of this with photographers where I'd almost call them like uh, technical or scientific uh, images where you're, say, shooting particular types of scales Mm -hmm. or Uh, a particular… You know, say a pit organ on like a, a superman pit viper, maybe, and and yeah, I'm just curious if you've ever done that type of photography and how that might be different than say, you know, typical macro
1: photography with mm-hmm. a snake. So generally, the challenge with these super macros you're speaking of is getting your lighting to, or is because you have to get your lens so close to the subject that oftentimes it can be hard to light the subject because your flashes illuminating the space behind the subject as opposed to the the part you actually want illuminated. So I'd say the only difference in that case is really keeping, making sure that you're still lighting that that area up with your flash if it's too close, you know. It can be harder to angle the light properly, but otherwise it's more or less the same. Um, just focusing correctly and, and getting your light in there. Great. And do, are, are, is there a lot of variation in macro lenses?
0: Um, and if so, what do you recommend for people uh, interested
1: in snakes? Yeah, so um, the variation really mostly with macro lenses is um, stronger versus less strong. So I've got a 90 millimeter macro, um, which is pretty strong, but it definitely gets stronger. Um, I know sometimes for me with my macro lens, what I don't like about is that let's say I have a very large snake um, and I want a full body photo of the snake I have to you know back up a lot so I would have to I would have to be maybe five feet away from a large a large viper to get a full body shot of that and then if you think about that that means if I'm trying to light it with my external flash I have to have my arm super outreached um, to like get the lighting right if I want my light to be coming from above Um, so, you know, with a larger subject, a macro lens can often be kind of cumbersome. Um, and then also sometimes I want a stronger macro lens because I have, let's say I want a portrait of a very small, of a very small snake or, um, or maybe I'm not even photographing a snake at this point at all. And I'm photographing like a tiny frog, like a dart frog or something, you know, you really want these strong macro lenses. And then with a stronger macro lens, you can, you have the opposite problem, you know, like and you don't want to be too close. So you want to back, be able to back up a little bit. So really it depends how, how strong it is. But my recommendation, I think 90 millimeters. I mean, I've had this lens since I was like 11, 12 or something. Um, and it's been working really well for me. So I think like 90 millimeters is a, is a good, is a good macro lens for, for snake and reptile photography. Okay. Uh,
0: let's let's shift and talk about another type of photography and i'll just tell you my absolute favorite snake pictures are uh ones where let's just say there's some beautiful like well, let's just say a mountain king mm-hmm. snake sitting on a rock mm-hmm. and it's kind of off to the left of the frame and you just see this mountain landscape going you know really far into the distance and there's a lot of uh just like great depth of field and uh so what am I talking about there? How do you take that type of picture yeah. and what are things I mentioned, like I use the word depth of field, like explain mm-hmm. that all to us and how how you would take such a picture.
1: Yeah. So, it sounds like you're describing a and habitat photo or also wide-angle macro is kind of a fancier term or close focus wide-angle photo. Um, so, basically like, yeah, the idea here is you have a beautiful landscape and you have your, your herp or your subject in the foreground with a beautiful vista in the back. And yeah, those are often my very favorite types of photos as well. Um, I like them because they show the habitat and often just because it's, it's just so beautiful to look at. Um, and it makes for a great memory, for sure. And also looking at other people's photos of it, is just, it you, there's some photos you just look at and you just say, wow, that is just incredible. And oftentimes with snakes, it's a, it's a wide-angle macro or, or herping habitat photo. Um, so these are often... One of the most challenging photos to take, um, at least for me, because lighting can be a challenge. um, And because you have to get the lens really close to the subject, um, lighting can be a challenge. And often, especially if the HERP is uncooperative, and for me, the lens I use, I have to use manual focus Adding another, and it's because my lens doesn't do autofocus um, for these kinds of photos. It's just it can be a real challenge. Um, however, when they work out, it can it's totally worth it. Um so if I if somebody's trying to get into like wide angle uh habitat photos, um first thing I would say is have a lens that can focus close. Because oftentimes any, photo, any lens that somebody would use for like a, a landscape um, does not focus close, meaning if I'm photographing a small snake, it'll only take up like a few, a, a very small portion of the, of the frame. However, there are quite a few um, lenses now that people have been using um, that allow you to get your lens really right up in the face of your subject and kind of have both the best of both worlds being like a nice close up photo of the snake while still expanding into the background and having a lot of background. Um so again, I want to emphasize how important having an external flash is for these photos especially because you want to make sure the the animal is lit from from the direction that you're shooting from. So oftentimes if I'm photographing a nice vista, um the the sun might be hitting from an angle, and the the side of the face that's facing the camera is going to be shaded, and that just doesn't make for a good photo. So you want to have that extra external flash coming in from and light up that 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 shadow to make sure um, the the snake is properly lit. Um, a nice trick for anyone who's really getting into this, um, pretty much what I do every single time is I compose the image how I want it before I even get the the subject in the in the frame. And I will make sure the background is properly exposed. Um, I do that through trial and error. And I'm on manual shooting mode, meaning I have to set all of the settings myself. Um, So I use trial and error to make sure I get that down right, um, saying the ISO, the aperture, and the shutter speed correctly that's
0: so that's before you even put the snake on the rock you're um, photographing just the landscape looking yep. at okay
1: yeah because otherwise if i get the snake and i get the perfect pose you know it doesn't hold that for very long and then i miss the shot you know like finicking with my with my setting so i want to make sure i have everything ready first so first i'll first i'll get the settings right for the background because that light intensity is not going to change that's you know the sun is is setting that so I just gotta make sure that's correct. Then I get my external flash and I will adjust the intensity of the external flash um, until the foreground is properly lit as well. Um, so that's something that I think is often the biggest challenge for people because sometimes you know you try to get the foreground right and then you get the foreground right, but then you realize the background is completely black or the background is completely white and just totally overexposed or totally underexposed. And that can be a source of frustration very frequently and sometimes even for me it, it's it's a challenging thing to do um, but if you first set the background uh, settings get the settings correct for the background and don't change the settings anymore in your camera and only a change the intensity or the distance that your flash is from the subject that can ensure that both the foreground and the background are properly exposed and I hope that this helps a lot of people and kind of because it's something that will change your life <laughs> it's a very <laughs> nice tip So, you use a, you you called it a wide-angle
0: macro lens. That's the best type of lens for this type of photography.
1: Especially if it's, like, really a wide-angle macro lens. Like, you can get, like, even small salamanders to look big in the frame. And, like, it can, it's it's a pain, but it can be really, it can be a really cool photo for sure. And what
0: is that, uh, those words I use, depth of field? How would Mm. you define that?
1: Yeah, so, depth of field, you know, some photos, you take a photo, let's just, think about it in a portrait scenario at first because it's easier to think about. Let's say I'm taking a head-on photo, meaning the subject is looking into the lens of a rattlesnake. If I have a small depth of field and I'm focused on the eyes, basically only the eyes will be sharp. However, if I have a you know like a wider depth of field, a larger depth of field, um maybe the eyes are sharp and even the nose in the front, which is closer to the camera, is also sharp. Um so this, like, what kind of depth of field do you like is totally subjective. Like this really, really depends on the photographer. I know many of my friends really prefer a really shallow depth of field. Um, you know, like only having the eye sharp, you know, like blurring out the rest of the rest of the portrait and that can be really cool. You get a really pretty bouquet or bokeh, I don't know, people always yell at me for calling it bouquet. A bokeh in the background, which is like the pretty blurred out kind of watercolor looking background. Um, but then also for like a, a landscape, wide a wide angle and habitat shot, you might want a very wide depth of field to ensure that you're still, you know, you know, you don't totally blur out the beautiful vista in the back. So, yeah, it depends. But sometimes like some people like having that that background blurred. So it's very subjective. Um, how but, do you how do you control yeah, that
0: with right. your gear? Like how do you make it very where it's just the eye, or like you said, you've got the the nostrils mm-hmm. and, and more uh, depth of field. Like so how that, do you control that? Uh,
1: so yeah, to describe that, uh, basically, the aperture affects the the depth of field. So for any macro lens, usually for my macro lens, I usually shoot between f. 2.8 which is the aperture setting it, it's called the f-stop as well sometimes aperture or f-stop is the same thing so I shoot between f 2.8 and f 11 for the most part um, and here's something that's very confusing for any beginning photographer is that so okay we'll start with a little bit of photography lesson the aperture is how how wide the hole in the lens is um, how wide it is and how much light Hits the sensor because of that. So with a physically large aperture, uh, it's a very wide hole, and you can imagine a lot of light goes through that hole and hits the center to, um, you know, develop the photo. And with a very physically small aperture, um, much less light goes into goes through the aperture and hits the sensor, and will result in less light, meaning like a darker photo. And I say physically smaller because the number of the f stop the number is larger as the hole is smaller. So that's why it's a little bit confusing and can screw a lot of people up. So if I say a wider aperture, it means the the, the hole is larger. However, the number is smaller. So f2.8 is actually my largest aperture and f11 is my smallest aperture. Um, I don't make the rules. I'm sorry that it's confusing in that way. Okay, now that we got that out of the way, I can tell you that a larger aperture, meaning the smaller number, so f2.8 in my case, will result in the smallest depth of field, meaning basically like a shot where only the eyes are sharp and nothing else. And if I open, if I, or rather, if I close down the aperture to a smaller aperture, the largest number being f11, then more, of the, more depth in the photo will be sharp, so I have a larger depth of field. Um, So basically, no matter what lens you're using, pretty much, as you change the aperture like that, that is how your depth of field is changing. So the larger the number, the larger the depth of field, the smaller the number, the smaller your depth of field. Um, But it's a little bit confusing because the way aperture is labeled is kind of opposite as to what's actually happening to the size of the aperture. Um, But yeah, so the aperture affects the depth of field. Great. Let's, uh, do you have much cause? I mean, obviously,
0: you know, a lot of wildlife photographers I know say are photographing mammals or birds in particular use a lot of really intense zoom lenses. Mm-hmm. So, um, do you have much cause, uh, for using zoom lenses and snake photography? And so when, and, and how would you use a zoom lens?
1: So I've had my zoom lens for a while now. It's, uh, 100 millimeter to 300 millimeter zoom lens, um, which means if there's a, if there's, let's just say, a bird for now sitting like a little ways away from me, like I can, I can get a, I can magnify it to a pretty good amount. Um, It's not a, it's not a huge lens and it's small. So I like, I like my lens because it's light and I can light for its uh, strength and I can carry it with me wherever I go. Um, For snakes in particular, I really only use that lens yeah, pretty much. I only use that lens for in situ and it can be very good for in situ photos because, you know, if you're wanting to keep your distance, like let's say you, let's say there's like a den, a rattlesnake den, and you know, you get your macro lens right up in their face and they're going to, you know, dip and go into their holes. Like I've been, I use my zoom lens for that so that I don't have to be so close. So for in situ photography, like it can be really nice to have a zoom lens. Um, and I know my zoom lens is actually not particularly sharp. It's fairly old now, and um, it was never a, considered a sharp lens to begin with. So when we're getting into like the really the details, so um, that's another reason I, I very rarely shoot snakes with it because you know I really love that detail, um, and I just don't get that with my zoom lens. So thank you for listening to Snake Talk. If
0: you like what you've heard on this podcast, you can help us by subscribing and leaving us a five star rating. Also, if you have any comments or suggestions, be sure to leave us a review.
1: For me, using my zoom lens for snakes is very rare. However, I always have, that's always the lens that's on my camera at any given moment um, in case I see like a bear or a mountain lion or a cool bird and a hawk and eagle, like. You know, I'm I'm not just photographing snakes here, so I really love my zoom lens to be able to capture um, any other wildlife I encounter. So I'd say, yeah, I definitely recommend having a zoom lens if you can. Um, It's it's a nice it's nice to have whenever you see any other wildlife, which I hope everyone else is appreciating as well on top of snakes. Yeah.
0: How do you, so say you you see a snake and you want to take this in situ photograph, how do you deal with some of the other issues at, at distance that you've talked mm-hmm. about, whether it be lighting or, or some of the, are there any tricks or, or is it just, you just have to deal with the situation you're given?
1: Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the whole thing that makes in situ photography a real challenge is that you don't have that, you know, you, you don't have those abilities to manipulate the scene exactly how you want it to be. So it, it's much harder. I mean, you know, 95% of in situ, I'd say, at least it's like, you got a snake in a bush. There's like a million twigs in the way there's, it's shaded. It's also, it's sunny at the same time. You know, it's, you just cannot possibly get a good photo. And like, sometimes you just can't get a good photo, um, with in situ photography. And if you're a hardcore for in situ photography for you say, yeah, that's worth it. Um, that's just how it is. So in terms of tips and tricks for in situ photography, Um, yeah, zoom lens is nice lighting. If it's in the shade, I'd say do what you can with natural light. Um, you know, open up your aperture. So make a smaller number, have a bigger aperture to let more light in so that you can, um, maximize your shutter speed. So that's as fast as possible. So you're not getting motion blur. Um, so basically what that means is as you let more light in your shutter speed can be faster. Um, and then you won't have your your camera shake won't be as apparent, um, and you can have a sharper image that way. So that, that's a good tip, um, but really um, in terms of what you can do, it, it's it can be very limited. Um, but also um, a less technical aspect of in situ photography would be just really slowing down your movements. Um, For snakes, they're less skittish, but like, let's say you're trying to get in situ photographs of a lizard. You know, I've spent like an hour and a half just approaching one collared lizard to get a nice close-up macro photo without having to catch it. Um, So often just slowing down your movements um, so that you're really taking a a long time to get close to your subject is a good tip for in situ photography as well. Um, But yeah, and it's hard, you know, there's no... I don't have some magic trick into getting perfect photos um, when, you know, a snake is deep in a bush or deep in a rock crevice or, or they're just not, they're often like the most secretive place possible because they're always hiding. So it can be hard, but yeah, if, if the opportunity arises, definitely go for, you know, slow, slow down and, and try, Try your best. <laughs> much. Great,
0: you mentioned uh, marine species, and mm-hmm. you know, obviously, we have sea snakes, and there's also a lot of uh, you know semi aquatic or fully aquatic freshwater snakes mm-hmm. around the world. Um, and li- I just want to talk a little bit to to wrap up the photography part. Talk a little bit about underwater mm. uh, photography. And so, um, first of all, have you had the opportunity to uh, You know, do any underwater photography with snakes or has that been primarily with more of, you know, other species? Yeah,
1: I've never seen a sea snake before still. It's a dream species for me. Um, On the West Coast, we don't have as many large waterways. Um, So, we do have garter snakes here that live in the water and I have tried my hand at photographing um, garter snakes underwater um here in our streams but basically our streams are just so shallow that I can't even get my camera like completely in the water so it hasn't really worked out. I know there are some incredible freshwater underwater fo- photos coming out from like the south, from the east um and there's some there's some really really cool some really cool potential photos and I'll be heading to Florida for college Eckerd College soon and I, I hope to try my hand at some of that underwater photography in the springs, um, maybe alligators even would be a really amazing subject. Um, so that underwater herp photography thing is something I don't really have too much experience in, other than sea turtles, really. Um, but that's well. A different so you've subject. but
0: you have done a lot of underwater photography with marine animals. So yes, we sure. won't spend as much time on it. But but what are some of the considerations? I mean, obviously, you've got expensive camera equipment mm-hmm. underwater, so you need to do something about that, um, but you have different lighting issues, oh, you've yeah. got, uh, you know, a, a wide variety, you know, you can't necessarily uh, pose a, a lot of these animals, uh, so so, what are some of the considerations for, for doing underwater photography?
1: Yeah, so the whole underwater photography realm for me is much newer, so I feel without being, okay, losing my modesty a little bit here, I feel I've, I'm somewhat of a master in, like, my herb photography. However, underwater, I am still very much a beginner. Um, and my equipment is also beginning as well because it's, it's much more expensive. Um, so, um, but what I have learned is that lighting is harder. Um, I'm free diving it, which means I'm holding my breath most of the time with my underwater photography so that obviously makes things harder um macro my equipment is harder to use because it's underwater and do you have like a you have like a casing for your camera or do they i have a point and shoot a completely different camera with a with an underwater housing at the moment um so and do they make cameras
0: that they themselves are completely yeah. waterproof made for that? Okay. So
1: for our audience, I definitely think it would be most useful to kind of talk about if you want to get into this underwater stuff, what kind of camera would you want? And I always tell people, um, like I just had my friend just asked me this the other day, um, like, should I go for a GoPro or should I go for like a legitimate, like small under relatively cheap underwater photo- uh, underwater camera? Um, and the answer to that really, really depends on if you want to be taking videos or do you want to be taking more photos? Um, so let's say somebody goes to Hawaii and you, know, you want to like, get some really nice video footage of some sea turtles. You know, that, that, that's totally a very common thing that people want. You know, I want to see some sea turtles in Hawaii. I want some nice video footage of them for, like, my, for my vlog on, on YouTube or something. And for that, like totally go for a GoPro. GoPros are really incredible um, little cameras for videos and they're durable for the most part and relatively easy to use. So, you know, GoPros can be really amazing tool for uh, underwater videography. And also underwater, they take decent photos too as well. Um, However, let's say you are really interested in, like, the small little critters in the ocean. So, like, um, for example, what I'm really interested in, nudibranchs, and those are basically colorful, small sea slugs. And they can be super tiny. And a GoPro, photographing a nudibranch with a GoPro would just never work because they're meant for basically wide-angle videos, which would be great for a sea turtle. Um, But for a nudibranch, it would be awful. So if you kind of are really interested in those macro inhabitants of a reef um i would say go for um what i used was uh, an olympus tg4 uh so the olympus tough series are really really good point and shoot cameras you don't even need a housing for it um so you can get like you can be in the water with like basically 250 bucks i think maybe a bit more 250 300 bucks you can be in really really good shape with a lot of abilities. And if you don't even care about videos at all, and you're just gonna be taking photos, I'd say definitely go for something in the Olympus, Olympus TG series. Um, because you just have, you have all the settings. Uh, you can manipulate the settings just exactly how you want. Um, and it's very good for photography. Uh, so basically, videos or photos, depending on that, I'd say between, choose between the GoPro and the Olympus. Uh, that's the most common question I have from the beginning. Okay. People are just hitting the water for the first time,
0: well, I want to transition away from the photography itself and techniques and and uh begin to wrap up here, but before we leave it, is there anything that you think is really important about snake photography, any topic uh anything of that nature that we didn't talk about that you think is worth uh mentioning?
1: yeah, so uh, we did we did talk about it a bit earlier, um and I just think really keeping in mind that we are photographing a living animal, um, is very important. Um, because I definitely think that like for me in the past, I might have slipped up and kind of forgotten that and really been focused on the photo as opposed to the animal. Um, so I think it's really important just to reiterate that we are, um, photographing real animals here and just never to forget that. Um, yeah, i say say like, there's only one thing I could say like that, but also, like, have fun, you know, um, be able to acknowledge that you're not on, always going to get that perfect photo. And, and I would hope that everyone can still enjoy, um, having that privilege to see that rare species you were looking for and just not to get too tunnel tunnel vision in on, on the photography aspect of it and just, just enjoy the animals and respect the animals. Um, I think that's really important. Um, Yeah. So I think I think with those the, those two things are, are really important to remember and I hope everyone does.
0: Okay, well last last question to kind of wrap up the photography piece. Uh and and I'll focus it around things such as iPhones and Galaxies, you know, basically the the idea that we now have, you know, pretty powerful cameras in our pockets. Mm-hmm. And so um, as the world is taking more and more photos, how what advice, general advice would you have uh, for people who are interested in in snake photography? What can they do to set themselves apart from all of these uh, you know people you know taking photos of everything they see? And then just general recommendations that you might have for people get how to best get into snake photography?
1: So, yeah, I mean, the iPhones these days and some other phones take some really amazing, high-quality photos. And I, I respect uh, that. And if you just want to take photos on your phone, like, that's, that's all good. But I really think that getting a, a, a big entry-level DSLR, um, and even, I mean, if you're not that into um, the photography and just want more zoom capabilities, maybe, like, some basic flash capabilities... There are some point and shoots um that can be really, really powerful as well. It'll give you a lot more zoom than an iPhone, give you a lot more macro abilities than an iPhone. Um so like depending on how far you want to take it, like yeah, get a really nice point and shoot, really nice sharp point and shoot, or get a get an entry level DSLR camera or, or a mirrorless camera as well. There's many Sony's now that are, are affordable and really sharp and give you many different options. Um so yeah, like what Whatever you, if you think you're going to take it a long way, you know, maybe pay that extra buck and get a more advanced camera. Um, And if you think it's just like, oh, I just want, you know, be able to get some slightly sharper photos, you know, maybe a, a point, an advanced point and shoot is the way to go for you. So
0: and those yeah. are all gear things which are obviously mm-hmm. very important with photography. Um but with my how do you how do you set yourself apart from the others question, are there other things that you would recommend in terms that can make you a better photographer that aren't necessarily mm-hmm. uh just pure
1: what gear you have? Mm-hmm. Um yeah, I think like a lot of it is kind of developing some kind of style or um, trying a lot of new photography techniques, I'd say mess around sort of, um, if you like, you know, I know that there's a general kind of consistency in, in her photography. I've been seeing, you know, everything like soft light, um, portrait, textbook photos. And I I don't want to like be too judgmental and be like, Oh, it's all boring. Um, but you know, you, you see a lot of the same types of photos. So, um, kind of playing around with your lighting can be fun. Um, maybe just, yeah, just try new things and try to try to do something that hasn't been done before. can always, you know, positively influence your photography. So try new things and don't just copy what you're seeing posted online necessarily. Develop your own style. Great. Well, uh, kind of two part question here.
0: First of all, uh, you know, I want you to tell people where they can find more info about you and your photography. Um, And then also wrapped into that, do you do photography like uh, for people like on contracts or do Mm -hmm. you sell photos? Um, so, So go ahead and kind of answer those two if you could.
1: Yeah. So you can find me on Instagram is probably where I'm most active posting photos. That would be my handle is great white rattlesnake. So you can imagine like a great white shark, except it's a rattlesnake. Um, and I I post, uh, fairly periodically on there. And also if you have any questions, like feel free to send me a DM. I'm very happy to answer questions and stuff like that. And am I like, I I wish (laughs) like people, uh, would hire me to, take photos and stuff but no not really haven't had that yet um however i am selling my prints um on Photography.com. so if you would like a pretty photo on your wall or a pretty photo as a gift to somebody you know who's interested in snakes um or any other wildlife for that matter um just head on over to nicholashessphotography.com Photography.com.
0: Yeah, and I would recommend that everybody do go check that out. That's how I found Nicholas was through his website, and he really does have That's some cool. amazing pictures on there. So go on there and and order yourself a print. Okay, so uh, before we wrap it up here, Nicholas, the the I like to ask all of my guests to tell me their best snake story. Mm-hmm. So go ahead, shoot
1: so luckily i was prepared for this question um so i did a lot of thinking because i have some options but i think anything else would be wrong except finding what i consider to be the like my my holy grail for a long time and to this day still the snake that kind of just i still can't believe i found it anyways so as i mentioned earlier i live on the outskirts of los angeles here in southern california And to my right right now, sitting in the backyard, I can see what's called the Verdugo Hills or the Verdugo Mountains. And you can imagine they are uh, a very small mountain range. Um, They span maybe 20 miles long. I hope I'm getting that right. Um, And they have a few small canyons in them which have seasonal creeks. Um, And I live right next to them, so I kind of have like this personal attachment to them. I got into animals up there, a lot of the first things I was finding was up in those hills. So there is, it's literally close to home for me. Um, and the species that live there are not many, but there actually are California mountain king snakes living in the Verdugo Hills. Um, and if you're not familiar with the California mountain king snake, it is an absolutely jaw dropping snake. Um, it's one of those tri colored red, black and white snakes. Um, and yeah, it's just a, a ridiculously beautiful snake, no matter where you find it. Um, and they do live in the Verdugo Hills. So growing up here, <laughs> I was always hoping, like, oh, maybe one day I'll be able to find a California Mountain King snake in my backyard hills of the Verdugo Hills. Um, and as time goes on, I had seen my first California Mountain King snakes elsewhere, and had ev- I have even become quite decent at finding them, finding a, a, a decent number per year. Um, and Hiking in the Verdugo Hills is a challenge. It is a very dry landscape. Um, there are a few areas with decent-sized trees, and the, the the mountain kingsnake really loves its riparian shaded areas. Um, so the Verdugo Hills being just like bombarded by sunlight and just mostly just chaparral, it's a as you can imagine, it was a very hard area to target the species. However, there are some oaky riparian canyons uh, in the lower parts of it. And this is where I started to begin my search. So I've always wanted to see one here, but it wasn't until about 2019, um, like 2018, 2019, that I really began to really target this species. Um, And also I should mention that there are only a few photos of California mountain kingsnakes from this range. Uh, it, it, there's no, there was never any doubt that oh, are they here? Or are they not here? Everybody knows that they're here, but there, I had only seen about three photos of California mountain king snakes from this range ever before, um, and those photos that there are, it is just a striking, unbelievably beautiful individuals. So that made me just even more gung ho about going out and trying to trying to find one in in the Verdugo Hills. So. Basically, in 2019, I spent a very, very, very large amount of time in these canyons in the perfect in the most perfect habitat habitat I could find in these hills, looking for the mountain snake. Did not find one in 2019. Um, and then 2020, again, I began the same the same process. Basically, hiking these hills, and there's no, there's no rocks to flip in the Verdugo Hills, so you I would have to have hiked one. Um, I should mention that. Um, so I was hiking back and forth these these canyons pretty much every single, as much as I possibly could since it's right here. Anytime I had free time, I would just go and give it a shot because you never know. And I was working up to 400 hours of, I easily, I had searched for 400 hours and I had nothing. This was in June of last year, and this is during COVID too. So I had, I was having school online, so I was – you know, I had so much time to go look for the snake. And I was honestly driving myself a little bit crazy towards the end of June. Um, and, you know, come July, it gets really dry here in California. And I knew and I probably wouldn't find one um, after, after that. So June was like a good time to find one. But coming up to the end, the last few days, of the season, and I was not seeing it, I was like, man, I'm going to go to, I'm going to take my gap year and go to college the next year, I'm not going to be in the area, I might actually never find the Verdugo, the the mythical Verdugo Z, and I I maybe not wasn't talking to myself, but my conversations in my head were getting intense, you know, just self-doubt, all kinds of, all kinds of like, oh my God, it's such a waste of time, I've dedicated so much amount of time to this, I've tried so hard, not finding what I want to find, like, man, I, I was getting in my head. And, of course, there's only so much habitat that I keep hitting the same places over and over again. I know every single turn so well. It's just really, really got in my head. And most of these searches, I'm by myself as well. So just it, it was hard on the mind as well, <laughs> hard on the mind and the body. Like, it it was really quite the search. Finally, on June 20, 2020, um, I tried actually a slightly different time of day. I tried a little bit later in the afternoon and the conditions were just absolutely optimal and, you know, but it's not the first time I've searched with optimal conditions. So I didn't, I of course did not have my hopes up But I began my search and I went a little bit farther and I went faster than I usually did. I kind of almost just wanted to get it over at this point, as opposed to just looking for the snake. Um, because I was like okay, I'm here now. I'm just gonna speed run it, sort of, just whatever. Barely, you know, really low hopes. Like I had done this a million times already. I was I was doing it fast, and I would be lying if I said like my I wasn't going a teensy bit cuckoo. Because at some point, like I saw a bird, like where I w- was thinking about turning around, I saw a bird and it like flew up the canyon. I was like, oh my gosh, it's an omen to like continue, like whatever. Anyways, I was like, okay, I'm going to go a little bit further. And I'm just going to power on through a little bit more, see what happens. And I kept going and I was, I had my head down. I was grinding hard. And then, oh my God, like right in front of me was this relatively enormous California mountain king snake, just perfectly tricolored with perfect red, black, and white bands just in front of me. And like my heart just like completely stopped. It felt I just froze I didn't even let out a sound and I probably stood there for I don't know like almost a minute the snake wasn't moving at all almost a minute I stood there just kind of processing trying to think if I was even seeing what I was seeing and I almost feel like I didn't black out but like my mind was just in such a state of euphoria in in those first couple moments of discovery that I can't even remember exactly how I felt. It was just, I was just completely dumbstruck. It was so beautiful. And it's like what I had been working hard for like, literally like the last 10 years to an extent. And especially these last, this last two years, I've been spent so much time looking and yeah, I, I was just blown away. And then after like kind of gathering my, my thoughts, I, you know, photographed it kind of like, Picked it up, just like hands shaking, like like my whole body was just trembling. Like I could not believe that it had happened because I was, I just had all, nearly lost hope at this point. um So, yeah, that later that day, like walking out of there, I was, I, I cried on the way back actually. Like I just could not believe it. I had spent so much time um trying to find the snake, and then when I finally found it, it was just this absolutely remarkable individual i've never seen anything like it um and yeah i I don't know i just i was just in it was it was an unreal night really because on the way back it was actually dark um and yeah i just felt so grateful um and then after doing the math like after adding up how many hours at a bare minimum it was 400 hours of dedicated search for this snake um so yeah a long uh, a long time um, yeah well I'm,
0: I'm glad I'm glad you found that snake. That's a great story about perseverance yeah, right. and and uh, emotion and all that so glad glad you found that snake. Well Nicholas, I'm really glad uh, you could join us today. I appreciate you uh, coming on
1: yeah thank yeah, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure to share all this with you and yeah if anybody has any any viewers have any or listeners have any questions, just send me a DM on Instagram Great white rattlesnake I'll be I'm there, so, yeah. Great.
0: And uh, I just wanted to thank the audience and tell everybody to remember snakes are animals too. And it's a privilege to see one in the wild.